Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. So Shavuot celebrates, for the Jewish people, it celebrates the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. When we get into the Brit Hadashah, we find that after Messiah came and fulfilled the law, on Shavuot, the celebration of the giving of the law was the giving of the Spirit of God in a special way. The Spirit of God is eternal. The Spirit of God is omnipresent, so he's always present, but his unique ministries that we're going to talk about in a moment begins to come into fruition at the day of Shavuot recorded in Acts chapter 2. Everybody's with me? Yes. Okay. Now, we're going to go through this. I'm going to go through some of these slides rather quickly, but remember, this is all going to be on tape. You can watch it again if you are so <laughs> desirous, but, uh, and if not, that's fine. You know, uh, on the other hand, uh, if you want to get uh, the PowerPoint, all you need to do is to write me and I'll send it to you. Okay, so you don't have to feel pressured to get all of this. I really want you to sort of watch what's going on up here. Not that there's anything fancy or anything, but some of the information and some of the things I'm going to share with you. I want you to sort of, you know, think about the things I'm going to share and um, and sort of take it in. Okay, so don't try to go crazy turning all over the place or scrolling down, you know, whatever means you're using of the word of God, because you can get this in a variety of ways. But just sort of sit back, relax and take in what what we're going to talk about. So we're we're focusing specifically, I'm just going to get there on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in which he fills the believer. Okay, but to do that, we have to sort of ask a series of questions. I want to ask seven questions this morning and to provide some answers for them. So our first question is this. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Ruach HaKodesh? Ruach is breath, wind in Hebrew. Kodesh, well, we said it in our liturgy. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy. So Ruach HaKodesh is the wind of, the, of holiness, the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so when we make reference to him in Hebrew, Ruach HaKodesh, we're simply making reference to the Holy Spirit. We may refer to him as the Spirit of God. We may refer to him as the Spirit. Sometimes in the scripture, he's referred to as the Spirit of Messiah. So there are different phrases that are used, but we're speaking about that one who is the third person of the triunity of God. Now, I realize with that statement, I've opened up a whole Pandora's box and a whole uh, variety of things can be said there. We're not here to talk about the triunity and the mystery of that reality of God's character, but we are here to focus our attention on a particular ministry of the third person of that triunity. Still with me? So now, who is the Ruach HaKodesh? Well, many speak of him as an influence. 
Many speak of him as a power. He provides power, but he is not a power. We speak of him as, some speak of him as an influence, and while he may guide, lead, and direct, and thereby attempt to influence, influence us to do the right thing, he's not an influence. Some speak of him as a force, a source. Sometimes in history, he's been spoken of as a fluid or like a fluid. There's all the, it's very difficult in some sense because you and I do not have personal encounter with spirit. You know, we can't see a spirit. So it's very hard to conceptualize or to imagine. Remember, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And we always admit to a spirit because we speak of the angels who are spirit beings. And more often than not, more people in certain uh, communities, certain religious environments, speak more to demons than they do to the Holy Spirit. And yet they don't find it problematic to think of demons as persons and not to think of them as merely sources or influences or powers or things of that sort. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden it's like, I don't get this. But when we talk about angels or demons, we don't have any problem in thinking of them as personal beings because the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a thing. He is a person. And he's not merely a person, he's a unique person. He is a divine person. He is God. Now, how do we know this? Because the scriptures use personal terms to denote him. So, for example, in the Greek, he, the word spirit, pneuma, we get the word pneumonia from that. Because the spirit, the spirit is like, it also is the same word for wind or air. And so pneumonia is the inability to breathe, to get air, to get wind into our lungs. Pneuma is the word for spirit. And when the word pneuma is used with respect to the Holy Spirit, personal pronouns are used, such as he. Not pronouns such as it, but rather the pronoun he. So first of all, in John 14, I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate, some Translations say comforter, but I have a problem with the word comforter, you know, because it makes me think of a blanket that you sort of wrap yourself in, you know, a comforter. The Holy Spirit's not a blanket, right? It's not a comforter like that. Oh, he brings comfort, indeed. But the word parakletos, which is the word that means para, means alongside. Kletos comes from the Greek word kaleo, to be called. It means to be called alongside. But to be called alongside for what purpose? The principle alongside purpose the Spirit of God provides is that he is an advocate. He's not merely a comforter or someone who walks with us through the course of life, although he does those things. As an advocate, it's a legal term. He stands before the Father and he makes a legal claim in your behalf. The legal claim is the Father cannot punish you. Why? Because Messiah has already borne our punishment for us. And it is not just for our punishment to be punished or our sin to be punished twice. If our sin is already paid for, you cannot any longer pay for it yourself. 
And just so that it is re-emphasized, the Spirit of God is our advocate who tells the Father over and over, He cannot exact judgment upon us because the payment of sin for us has been paid. That's what He's doing in heaven. He is our advocate before the Father who continues to proclaim our standing as innocent. We may not be innocent in practice practice, because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But our standing before the Father is that of being innocent because our standing is no longer us, but our standing is in Messiah. And our, the Holy Spirit is an advocate. Now notice this. Not only is he an advocate, but he's another advocate. Now the word another, in Greek, there are two different words for another. One word is heteros, which means another of a different kind. So we have words like heterosexual, another of a different kind. And so the word heteros is not what's used here. The word used here is a Greek word, alas. And the Greek word alas means another of the same kind. And so when Messiah says, look, I'm going to ask the Father, he will give you an advocate of the same kind as me. Was Messiah a person or an it? He was a person. So if the Holy Spirit's going to be another of the same kind like the Son, he must be a person. Otherwise, he's not an alas but he is a heteros. But Yeshua is very clear. I'm going to give you an alas like me. So he's a person. But there are other reasons why he's a person. He has intelligence. It says in scripture, the spirit searches everything. No one that is less than God can search everything. Because in order to search everything, you have to be everywhere anything is. And none of us are everywhere where there are every things. So, for example, there are things in outer space that we don't even know of. Why? Because we're not there. But the Spirit knows. There are things in the depths of the earth, in the deepest of ocean parts, you and I don't even know about. And there are microscopic things that we still can't see. There are colors we can't see. There are sounds we can't hear. But the Spirit of God knows all those things. And more than that, he knows the thoughts of God. And you and I only know some of the thoughts of God. The thoughts of God you and I know are the thoughts he tells us. But the Holy Spirit knows them all just by means of his own natural character. Why? Because he has intelligence. And his intelligence is of an infinite nature without end. And the only one that can have an infinite intelligence is God. So he's not only a person, because only persons have intelligence, right? I mean, you can speak and you can teach the pew you're sitting in, and that pew will not become any wiser. And that's because it's an it. And it's can't learn. Only persons can learn. And then the Holy Spirit has a will. You know, this is an interesting passage, 1 Corinthians 12, because it tells us that the gifts of the Spirit of God are not given to us by virtue of what we want. The gifts of the Spirit of God are given to each one individually as the Spirit wills. And so the problem is we sometimes desire other things than what God has for us. And we have to learn to be content with what He has 
for us. The other day when I was, uh, I don't know if it was here or maybe it was up in Valencia, I had shared, if I had my life to do over again, I would have made music more central component of my experience. But you know what? The Spirit of God did not give me gifts of music to that degree. He gave me some hobbies with it, and it's enjoyable. But what did he give me? Well, that's what I have to rejoice in. And that's what I have to use to his glory. But he's given each and every one of you, if you know Messiah, every one of you has a spiritual gift the Spirit of God has given you, and some of you have more than one. Not all of us have all the gifts. Not all of us have the same gift as everyone else. But there are some here who have similar gifts to what we have because they're given by his will. And that's because the Holy Spirit is a person because he has a will. Things don't have wills, but persons do. Not only that, he has emotion. He loves. Look at this. I appeal to you, brethren, by our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, and by the love of the Spirit. Is that interesting to think about? The Holy Spirit loves you. And we know that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. So we can make the Holy Spirit sad. And we can make the Holy Spirit happy by responding to his love. Everybody still with me? All I'm trying to say is if we're going to ask ourselves what is the filling of the Spirit, we need to understand who the Spirit is. Because the Spirit of God is a person. Not only this, the Holy Spirit does things only spirits can do. Just very quickly, he speaks, he intercedes. You know what's interesting? In Acts chapter 13... It says that the Holy Spirit said, separate from me, Barnabas and Paul, for the work I have for them. It says the Holy Spirit spoke those words. We don't know how he spoke those words. Maybe he spoke through a prophet who was in their midst. Maybe he spoke audibly. We don't know. But what we do know is he spoke. He didn't just give a sense to their hearts. You know, he didn't just sort of uh, intuitively awaken them to the thought, maybe we should go. No, they were praying, they were fasting, and the whole congregation was praying and fasting. And the Holy Spirit shows up and speaks. And he says, separate from me, Barnabas and Paul, Saul, and send them where I'm sending them. John Mark joins them, but it's interesting, the Holy Spirit doesn't mention him. And it's interesting, too, that halfway through the trip, John Mark leaves, but not Barnabas and Paul. Why? Because the Spirit of God said, I separate these two guys, and they have a job to do. So the Holy Spirit is also a person, but he's God. And so in Job, the Spirit of God has made me. Only God makes people. He makes us in his image. And so he made me. And in fact, he says, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Life is only found in God, and therefore the Holy Spirit is God. He's omnipotent. If we define God as that being who is all-powerful, well, then the Holy Spirit's all-powerful because he made human beings. Not only that, but he's everywhere. David writes, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. I, I should say he's omniscient. He'll guide you into all truth. He knows all the truth, not just some. He knows Every truth. And the only one that knows everything about everything there is to know about is one who is knowledgeable of everything, and only God is. And he's everywhere. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. 
The Holy Spirit is everywhere. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I make my grave in Sheol, you're there. If I go up to the heights, you're there. Wherever I go, I cannot escape the Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit is a person, but he is God. And God is a person, and thus the Spirit of God is a person. So the first question is, who is the Holy Spirit? He is a person. And therefore, we need to relate to him as we would persons. But the second question is, who can be filled with the Spirit? Now, we haven't talked about what is the filling of the Spirit. We'll get there. We're trying to get there. But who can be filled with the Spirit? There are two uh, criteria to be filled with the Spirit. One is, you must be a believer. And that's why it says in Romans 8, anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Messiah doesn't belong to him. So if you don't belong to him, you can't have the Spirit. You can't have the Spirit of God in any capacity. And that includes being filled by the Spirit. So the first step is to have the Spirit of Messiah. And that's the Holy Spirit. That's His Spirit. And that means we need to recognize He's the Messiah of Israel. He's died for our sins. He's our advocate. He's our Savior. And when we believe in Him, we receive His Spirit. The second thing is, you have to want to be filled with the Spirit. I know it may sound like every believer wants to be filled with the Spirit, but that's not true. A lot of believers want to sin. I want to believers want to continue on in sin. A lot of, of believers want to sort of get away with as much as we can, but that won't result in being filled with the Spirit. Because in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, don't get drunk with wine, but you can fill out any sin. Don't be engaged in this sin, but be filled with the Spirit. Can't be filled with the Spirit and be sort of tolerating sin in one's life. So David When he was confronted with his murder and him being a murderer and adulterer, he confessed it. He was cleansed and he was made righteous. So we have to deal with our sin. doesn't mean before you can be filled, you have to have your sin eradicated. That doesn't happen for anyone. But it means that when sin is made known to us, we address it. We deal with it. We pray about it. We ask for forgiveness from it. So you have to want to be filled with the Spirit have to want to be controlled by him and not by your own desires or interests. And so, first of all, you need to be a believer. But as a believer, you have to want God to be first in your life. Third question. So what are the ministries of the Spirit? Well, theologians divide the ministry of the Spirit in light of its relevance. So I don't want to talk about all different things, but there are two areas that we just need to think about. One is the work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in, at salvation and the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification or the ongoing of our life as he makes us more and more conformed into his image, which is a phrase Paul uses in Romans 8. So on the one hand, the Holy Spirit has ministries that are relevant to salvation. But then he has ministries that are relevant to our growing and maturing as believers in him. The filling of the Spirit has to do with ministries that are related to walking in his ways, to growing in him, becoming more and more conformed to his image. Filling has to deal with that. But before we look at that, I want to contrast it with the ministries of the Holy Spirit that have to do with salvation. So we're not going to go through every verse, but these are the five. Yeshua tells us that when the Spirit of God comes, he will convict the world of sin with regard to uh, its sinfulness. Now, when it talks about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, 
The word to convict means to convince. It means to convince one that one is truly a sinner and in need of God's grace. The reason you and I came to that place where we said, I need you to save me. We sang that, right? I cry out, you know, that you would save me. The reason we got to that point was because the Spirit of God was doing his work of convincing you you are in need of his forgiveness and you responded to it. That's what convicting of the work of the Holy Spirit refers to. It doesn't mean making you feel guilty. It means making you aware of your sin and convincing you you are in need of having it dealt with. It has nothing to do with guilt. You may feel guilty. You may not. You may come to realize, I'm a sinner. I'm just in need. I don't even know all the needs I had. None of us did. We didn't know the depth of our sin. We didn't even know what to be guilty for. Maybe we were guilty over one or two things, but there were thousands of things. But the Spirit of God just makes it, convinces us, I need Messiah. It's as simple as that. The second thing the Spirit of God does is he regenerates. To regenerate means, by the way, the word regeneration only appears twice in the New Testament. Messiah makes reference to it with regard to the Messianic age. And then Paul makes reference to it in Titus 3.5. Those are the only two places it's found. And the word regenerating means to give life. So after the Spirit of God convinces us that we have a need and we respond, please forgive me of that need, the Spirit of God imparts his life to us and we become spiritually alive. That's why Yeshua talks about the new birth, that it is like the Spirit. You don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it's going, but you can feel the effects. It's the Spirit of God that imparts the life of God to us after we've been convinced we need it. And then he indwells us. To indwell means he doesn't localize himself within us as such. It's just you in there. What it means is he enters into a personal relationship with you. To dwell within means that he's dwelling among us, with us. He has a personal interaction with us now. And he is with us always, even unto the end of the age. He's distinct from you. He is not you in that he comes in and now, oh, I'm the Holy Spirit. No. He indwells you and he enters in such a way that he imparts a personal relationship with you. And he cares for you. He leads you and he guides you. And he conforms you into the image of his son. And then it tells us that he seals us. The word sealing has to do with guaranteeing us. By being sealed with the Holy Spirit, we are guaranteed eternal life. That's why I believe when a person experiences the grace of God, he is signed, sealed, delivered for eternity. There's no going back. You've been permanentized as his. Now, that raises questions about how a person acts and lives their life. That's a different question. This question is about what does the Holy Spirit do when he takes hold of a person's life? He seals you in that life. And in sealing you in that life, he guarantees you will be with him forever and ever. 
And then finally, he baptizes. Now, this is where there's a great deal of controversy. I'm going to share with you my thoughts. I only ask you to think about it and consider what I'll share. I understand the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit as the way, the means by which we are identified with Messiah. That's what the word baptism means. It means to immerse, literally, but it signifies identification with. So when you are baptized in water, you are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. When John was baptizing individuals at the River Jordan, those that were baptized were being identified with his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It must mean that because Yeshua submits to John's baptism and he was not a sinner, so he did not have to repent of his sin. So why does he submit to baptism? Because he's identifying himself with John's message. And that's why when he preaches his first message, you can see it in Matthew 4, it's the same message John preaches. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He wasn't immersed for repentance. He doesn't need to repent because he never sins. So why was he immersed? He was immersed because he identified himself with John's movement, which was a back-to-God movement, which meant I need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Baptism means to identify with. And when the Spirit of God works in baptizing, he now has done a work in you where you are identified with Messiah. And that key phrase is applicable to you. We are in Messiah. That's Paul's most common expression throughout his letters, to be in him. How do you get in him? You are identified with him. And how does that work? The Spirit of God has identified you with Messiah, and therefore you are in him. Everybody with me? Now, often the baptism and the filling of the Spirit are confused. And I'll show you why they are confused. And it's understandable that they would be confused because in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Yeshua says... John immersed, baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is Acts 1, so he's referring to what? Acts 2, the day of Shavuot. You with me? Mm -hmm. So, Acts 1, he says you will be baptized with the Spirit. But now watch this. In Acts chapter 1, just three verses later, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem so that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit baptizes you, it doesn't say that. Now it says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So that's a different phrase. See, and so it's easy to say, well, to be baptized also means for the Spirit to come upon you. Does it or doesn't it? We know this phrase is used with regard to the baptizing work, but it's different. If he had said, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit baptizes you, we, we'd have no questions, Right? But it doesn't. It says he will come upon you. But now watch this. When you get to Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, it never uses the word baptized at all. It uses the word filled. So you can see why people who think that the filling of the Spirit is the baptism of the Spirit confuse the two distinct ministries of the Holy Spirit. Remember I said the work of the Holy Spirit at salvation is five. 
right? There they are. You didn't see filling there. Filling has to do with our life after our experience of salvation. So in Acts chapter 2 now, we have this uni- these unique phrases. Acts 1 said you'll be baptized. Acts 1 verse 8 says he will come upon you. And Acts 2 says you will be filled. So this is what I think is happening. I think in Acts 2, the disciples experienced two things of the Holy Spirit. They experienced the baptizing work, and they experienced the work of filling. They experienced two things, not one thing. And that's why we confuse the two, because we think the two are the same thing, but they're not. See, the filling of the Spirit has to do with receiving power. He doesn't say that in Acts 1, 4, uh, 1, 5. He says, in a few days you'll be baptized. But when he talks about power, he talks about coming upon And when we see the power, it has to do with being filled. And that's because as believers, the filling of the Spirit empowers them to serve. But the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit identifies them with Messiah. Two things happened, although we focus on the one because the baptizing work doesn't occur until Acts 2. And so because that's a unique place where the ecclesia, the church, the congregation gets formed... That's where it's formed for the first time. How is it formed? It's formed by the identifying of all of its members in Messiah. And therefore, the church or the congregation is formed in Acts 2. We identify it with baptizing. And then when we see them speaking in other languages and sharing the word and people coming to faith, we forget that's the result of being filled, not the result of being baptized. Now, check this. There's only seven verses that deal with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? There's only seven places it's mentioned in the New Testament. The first five are simply statements that the Holy Spirit will baptize them. Mark chapter 3, basically it's a a phrase like this. They're all different. Whether it's Matthew 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, John chapter 1, or Acts chapter 1. It's all about what will yet happen. So when you get to Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, they're talking about John the Immerser, the herald of the, of the king. In Acts 1, we read it already. Those are just statements of what's to happen. Simply that the Holy Spirit, uh, the Messiah will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So it's just a description. Of our seven, there's five of them. Now when you get to Acts chapter 11, that's the sixth occurrence. And there, Peter is sharing his testimony about what happened in Acts 2. Remember, he's the one that stood up and preached 3,000 were saved. When he tells us what happened, he tells us we were baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's just descriptions. Still hasn't told us what it is. There's only one place, right? That's six out of seven. Here's the seventh, 1 Corinthians 12. And this is the only thing it says. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. There it is. So what is this passage telling us? It's telling us, it's answering the question, what is the baptism of the Spirit? The only place you can look for it is 1 Corinthians, because that's the only place. All the other ones are just telling us it will happen. But it doesn't tell us what it is that will happen. And the only experience we see of it is in Acts 2. What happened? They stood up and spoke, and they shared the message. People were saved. But in 1 Corinthians 12... 
By one spirit were we all baptized into one body. It's the only place that tells us anything about what the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit is and does. And if we are to dissect that passage, this is what we find. The work of the Holy Spirit is something every believer experiences. It isn't a second work of grace. It doesn't have subsequently. And by the way, let me say this. That's a very dangerous thing to believe because it suggests that there are different levels of spirituality. You know, there's either you're a mature believer growing to maturity or you're not. But there isn't some that have the spirit and some do not. Some were baptized, some were not. Some are more spiritually minded and some are not. This is not true. It's either you're growing in the Lord or you're not growing. You're either maturing in him or you're not maturing. You're either in a journey in which you're walking with him or you're not. <laughs> you know, you're rebelling against him. That's all you have. There aren't super saints among us, you know? There's nobody who is more spiritual than another. I may stand up two steps taller. That's just so you can see me. That's all it, that's all it means. I get the microphone so that you can hear me, yeah? That's all it is. It has nothing to do with my position and status that I'm greater. We're all saints of God going down the road as God leads us. We have our unique gifts, for sure. We have unique uh, uh, calling, for sure. We have unique authority because of that calling. That's for sure. All that is true. But with regard to spirituality, we're either walking with him or we're not. We're either growing with him or we're not. But now check this out. He says, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. We were all given the one spirit to drink. Either we all were or we all weren't. If we all were, we all have experienced the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit, because that's what he says. We were all baptized. And remember to whom Paul is writing. He's writing to one of the most sinful churches that he had to deal with, the Corinthians. And this was a congregation that was divisive. This was a congregation that some said, I'm for Apollos, I'm for Paul, I'm for Yeshua. You know, they were all seeking to have greater recognition. This is a congregation where Paul says there is such sin in this congregation it's not even heard of among the Gentiles that one of your own would be uh, having sexual relations with his stepmother. That's what was going on here. And yet he still says we were all baptized. Remember, he includes himself. So number one, the work of the Holy Spirit in baptism, everyone experiences it. Secondly, it occurred for the first time on Shavuot. Remember, this is a unique ministry. It doesn't happen before because Messiah said, in a few days you will be, future. Hadn't happened yet. It happens in Acts 2, even though it's not said in Acts 2. Remember in Acts 2, what does it say? They were filled. It doesn't say they were baptized. But they were baptized because Yeshua said it would happen. So it first occurred in Acts 2. Why? Because that's when the church is starting. Hasn't started yet. They're believers, but it doesn't start until the congregation of believers is formed as a body and the believers are identified with Messiah and they are made into one body of believers. So we say it was future. And by the way, you're only baptized once. Because the Greek tense, where he says we were all baptized, is in the aorist tense in Greek. We don't have a tense like that in English. But in Greek, it means there's a point in time it happens, and, it hap- and the effects of it are everlasting. 
By the way, that's the tense of salvation. When you ask the Lord into your life, it affects you then and has eternal ramifications. Same phrase as used here. There aren't multiple baptisms. It happens once. And the effect of it is ongoing forever. Well, it identifies us with the Messiah. You'll never be non-identified with him. Well, that's the sealing of the Spirit. It guarantees we have eternal life. You guys still with me? Okay. Fourthly, the baptism of the Spirit joins the believer to the body. We were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. That's the identification. It identifies you with other believers around the world and throughout history. Not just here in this room. But anywhere where believers exist, and any time they've existed, we are identified with them. We are the body of Messiah. How do we become this body of Messiah? It's the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. You are identified with him. Notice nothing here about power. Nothing here about service. Nothing here about speaking in tongues. Nothing here of any kind of supernatural manifestations of anything. It has to do with what the Spirit of God does for you in salvation. When you were regenerated, did you feel anything? Yet you got all new life. When the Spirit of God sealed you, did you feel? No, you didn't feel anything. When the, when the Spirit of God did all those five, five ministries, when he convinced you, did he like whisper in your ear, you need to do this, you need it? No, you just got a sense within. It's a very subtle, loving, comforting, compassionate means work of the Spirit of God. And the baptizing work of the Spirit, it's not one of these things. It's something God does in the mystery of his relationship with you. I'm not saying there aren't expressions of great joy, for sure. I mean, I, can, I remember just going nuts when the Lord came into my life. You know, please don't misunderstand me. I'm only saying in some context, you would think that you, you've got to like, work at this thing. And if you don't show something, it didn't happen. That's not what this is about. Now, fifth question. So that's what the baptizing work is. We still didn't get to the filling. I'm sorry. It's like one o'clock. Only kidding. Only kidding. Fifth question. What is the filling of the spirit? We're getting there. Ephesians 5.18. By the way, there's only 15 references or so about the filling of the spirit. And it's very interesting when you read them. I'm not going to give them all to you, but what is the filling of the Spirit? Ephesians 5.18 is the key phrase. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean? Well, the passage teaches us a number of things regarding the filling of the Spirit. Number one, the filling has to do with control. The drunk person, the Spirit-filled person are controlled by something outside of themselves. The drunk, it's alcohol. The Spirit-filled person is the Spirit of God. So it has to do with control. It doesn't have to do with power necessarily, but it has to do with control. Secondly, both are controlled by something. Both then do things that are natural to them. The spirit-filled believer serves God with spiritual gifts. It's not natural, not necessarily expected. And with regard to being controlled by something outside, it's the spirit that is working. The second thing is being filled with the Spirit means that we have placed ourselves under the Spirit's influence and control. We've yielded ourselves to Him. And that's why Paul says, consider yourselves as living sacrifices. And so, secondly, being filled with the Spirit's a command, by the way. Ephesians 5.18 is an imperative. It doesn't say hope to be, let yourself be. No, it says be filled. So it's a command. 
The baptism, baptism is never a command. You're never commanded to be baptized. It's an aorist tense. It's something that already happens to you, not something you have to have happen to you. But filling, something you have to have. That's why I said to be filled with the Spirit means you need to be a believer and you have to want to. Being baptized by the Spirit is not something you have to want to. It's something that automatically happens when you embrace Messiah because he places you in the body of Messiah. So being filled is a, is a command. Believers without exception, all of us are expected to be filled with the Spirit. Filling is also, by the way, it's in the present tense, not the aorist. Present means keep on being filled. There's never supposed to be a stop to it. We're supposed to always be saying every day, every morning, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Fill me with your Spirit. May I be continually filled by your Spirit. I want to be controlled by you. That's what it's about. It's about control. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 2. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were controlled by the Spirit. That's why people said, are these guys drunk? And they said, it can't be drunk because it's too early. If it was later in the day, maybe. But no, 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 it's too early in the morning. They're not drunk. So why are they acting this way? Because they're being controlled by someone else. And what are they doing? They're speaking in languages they've not learned. Well, it's easy to do when the Spirit of God does that. But if you try to conjure it up, it's just nuts. But when God does it, people understand what you're saying. That's what happens in Acts 2. They don't just understand it. By the way, you read through the book of Acts, almost every time the filling of the Spirit is mentioned, people are saved. Almost every occurrence. And so salvation is a critical demonstration of the filling of the Spirit in the expression of power. And so the power isn't just nuttiness. The power is the speaking of the truth in a convincing matter that people are drawn to it and they respond. Why? Because you're not doing it. It's the Spirit of God. And that's why they say when Peter stands up, aren't these guys just fishermen? How can they be speaking like this? They can speak like that because the Spirit of God filled them. It's not baptism. He filled them. He's controlling them. And so in Acts 4, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, that's when he spoke before the Sanhedrin. After he spoke, 3,000 are saved. He gets hauled into prison. But look what happens. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't care where he is. The Spirit of God is moving through him. And then what happens? When they're released, it says when they had prayed, they were filled with the Spirit, and they continued to speak. See, the filling of the Spirit primarily has to do with the speaking of the truth of the Word of God. And look what they pray, that the Word of God would be communicated with more boldness. You know, we need the Spirit of God to fill us so that we will be bold in our communicating of the truth of the Word of God. That's what Beth Ariel needs. We need to be filled with the Spirit so that when we share the truth of God's Word with our Jewish neighbors, they'll come to faith. No, God's got to do a work of convincing. That's the other works. The Spirit of God's got to be working. But we have to pray. It's a command. Lord, fill me with your Spirit and use me to proclaim your truth that others might be saved. That's what the filling of the Spirit is about. The filling of the Spirit is an experience that a believer can have over and over and over again. That's why it says be continually filled. It may be momentarily for a particular need. I think all of us may have experienced that on occasion. Rex and I can talk about an experience just yesterday. I really sensed that. Did you, Rex? It was really 
wonderful to talk with this Jewish fellow who asked me this question. And I really felt like God gave me the answer. And he asked me this question. He said, "If, if God has created us to worship him, isn't worshiping him just a way of of an ego trip for God? Isn't worshiping him then kind of vain? If he created us to worship him and we worship him, isn't that kind of a vain thing for God to want to do? And you know, uh, Rex shared it with me on the way and I, I started thinking about it. But then when I talked to him, it was a little different how it came out. And I said to him, you know, imagine that you are a musician and you wrote this wonderful piece of music. And at the end of the, the mu- musical piece, they clap. Did that make you a better musician? Did that make you a better writer of music? Yes. You know? You were always that kind of musician and writer. Their clapping only acknowledged what they were able to perceive that you had already done. And I said, worship doesn't add to God. Worship doesn't make God more God. He's all God. Worship does something for us. Worship makes us more human. Makes us more of who we're supposed to be because he created us to worship him. So if we're not worshiping him, we're not being who he made us to be. I never would have thought of that. But God was at work. And this is what he needed to hear. And so he said to me, yeah, I never thought of it that way. I said, I never did either. (laughs) But I mean, if we really, you know, but back to the point, it can be a momentary empowerment for a particular need, but it also can be a characteristic of one's life. I thought this was so cool. By the way, Luke chapter one, verse 15 It says Yeshua would be conceived by the Holy Spirit and he would be full of the Holy Spirit. It says in Luke 1.15. He's not just filled with the Spirit, although in Luke chapter 4 when he stands up, we light the candles and he quotes Isaiah 61. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and I'm here to proclaim, teaching again, proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But Luke 1.15, even before he's born, it talks about he'd be full of the Holy Spirit. It says the same thing. Maybe I got it mixed up. It says the same thing of John. He'd be full of the Holy Spirit. It says the same thing that when Zechariah stands up and gives God praise for John's birth, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he spoke. It says the same thing of Elizabeth. When she sees Yeshua, well, it doesn't see Yeshua, sees Mary and, and her baby leaps in her mother's womb and in her womb. And it says, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke. The filling of the Spirit can characterize your life. So it says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good rep- repute, full of the Spirit of God. They were so ongoingly, continually filled with the Spirit, they were characterized as ones full of the Spirit. And by the way, it says that of Stephen on two occasions. It says that here, he's one of these deacons. You can look at it. But in chapter 7, when he's preaching and they get ready to stone him, it says Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looks up and he sees Messiah standing at the right hand of the Father. Full 
of the Holy Spirit. By the way, you look at Acts chapter 13, it says Paul was full of the Holy Spirit. We can be full of the Holy Spirit and we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Think of this. We can be characterized as people of the Spirit because we're full of Him. And we can be filled at particular needs, times. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. So what are the conditions for being filled? I know I'm taking much too much time. I really apologize. Uh, And I'll bring it to a close. Since the filling of the Spirit involves control, then we must be willing to yield ourselves. What are the conditions? You've got to yield yourselves as living sacrifices. Since the filling involves not grieving the Spirit, we've got to deal with sin. We have to confess it. We have to pray for deliverance from it. Since living by the Spirit is enjoined, that's in Galatians chapter 5, walk by the Spirit, that means to live by the Spirit, then the filling of the Spirit means dependence upon Him. We have to dedicate ourselves to Him. We have to say, I'm doing this. I'm going to serve. I'm going to walk in His ways. I'm dedicating myself. Last question. And what are the results? Here, This is what I found in the Bible. You become more like Messiah. You know, we looked at Uh, Ephesians 5, but Galatians 5, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. The fruit of the Spirit is the result of the filling of the Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to exhibit love. You're going to exhibit peace. You're going to exhibit patience. You're going to exhibit joy. You know, all those things. We'll be more like Him. We'll build up one another. Look at this passage. And now I'm asking you to turn... Uh, if, if you would like, in Ephesians chapter 5. That's where he says, be not drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit, 5.18. When you get to v- verse 19, let me see if I have it. This is what he tells us. Right after verse 18, he says, speak to one another in psalms, spiritual songs. What he's talking about is build up one another. Speak to one another. He's not talking about worshiping God there. He's saying we should build up one another by singing psalms to one another, reciting the word of God to one another. He talks about worship. And then he says, he focuses our attention on how we ought to deal with God. He talks about being thankful for everything. The filling of the Spirit is going to result in that. He talks about service. The filling of the Spirit is to empower us to serve. So if you want to be filled with the Spirit, you have to want to serve. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, you have to want to be like Messiah. You want to be building up one another, not tearing one another down. You don't want to be criticizing one another. You don't want to be critiquing one another. You want to build up one another. It's very easy to critique, very easy to criticize. Usually it's those that are, you know, observing what others are doing. Because when you're doing it, you know how hard it is. And you realize that you always make mistakes. But once you get in the game, then you can experience the filling of the Spirit. It's for service. We've got we to serve. And we have to serve one another. We have to serve the world. We have to serve our Lord. That's what worship ultimately is. And I think that's it. Oh, oh something here. Well, um, I think that's enough. But having said all of that, this is how I'd, I'd like us to close. How I'd like us to close. I'd like us to close in prayer. Let me just close this down just so that's not a distraction 
So the way I'd like to close is... Oh, I thought I did. Um, the way I'd like to close is I'd like us just to be, take a moment of prayer. I know it's very late. So we're going to close on this, this score. I'd like us to pray because I think what we need here at Beth Ariel's is a fresh filling of his spirit. Amen. You know? It's Shavuot. We need to be filled by his spirit. We need to be controlled by his spirit so that we could serve him. We're a small congregation. We need every, all hands on deck. And we need to be engaged so that we are fully who we ought to be. Right? This is what God has made us to be, to be worshipers of him, servants of him. And so we need to serve him. All of us have spiritual gifts. We need to use them for his glory. All of us need to build one another up. We need to be supportive. We need to be there uh, for one another. And we need to be there for this community. We are approaching the end times. The Jewish people here in this community need Messiah. Gentiles here need him too. And you and I have the words of eternal life. And so let's pray that the Spirit of God would take control of our lives. Where there's need to confess sin, let's do it. Where there's a need to affirm a will, Make sure you're, you're speaking truth to God, though. If you're really ready to dedicate your life to him, then we need to do that. But we just can't say it. We have to really mean it because that's what the filling of the Spirit is. If we're going to obey God, we have to obey the command. Be filled. And if being filled means being controlled by the Spirit, then we need to make sure that we deal with those things that might hurt us from such control. So let me pray. And after we pray, we'll sing, the ushers will come, and then we'll dismiss. Our Father in heaven, we bless you, Lord, and we praise you. We thank you for this word, and we thank you for this wonderful teaching of your word about the Spirit of God. And we pray that your Spirit has spoken to us, and that you would help us be responsive to his voice and to his truth and to his teaching. And so, Lord, we are all in need of, but also commanded to be filled by your Spirit. But we need you to work on our hearts to enable us to be yielded to your will and to be desirous of what you want from us and for us. And so, Lord, might you do that miraculous work. Perhaps this morning, for some, you have spoken loud and clear in the depths of their souls. And they need to let you know, Father, fill me. Perhaps there are some that need to wrestle with their lives and need to take what was shared and to reflect on it and to think about it. But Lord, we need to speak truthfully to you about this matter. But if anyone is here, my eyes are closed, but if anyone is here that needs to ask the Lord to fill them with his spirit. If there's anyone here that needs to say, Father, I need to yield myself to you. I need to offer myself a living sacrifice. I want to do that now. If there's anyone here that needs to 
say, yes, I want to obey your command to be filled. So, Father, fill me, work in my life to make me receptive to your filling. I'm just going to ask, just, just stand up and in the quietness of your heart and soul, just pray to him. And I'll just wait a few moments and then I'll lead us in a prayer. But stand up to the Lord and say, and lift up your hands to him and say, Father, I just want to be an open vessel for you. I want you to fill me for even as you fill us, you expand us, you grow us, you make us more mature in you. You make us more like Messiah. And Father, we need you to control us, to live the life through us that we need lived. We need you to help mold our wills and fashion and form to your own. Father, we want to be instruments that brings the good news to our community, to speak the truth of Messiah like we see it was done in Acts with the results of people giving their hearts to you. Father, might you fill us here at Beth Ariel and many other churches and Messianic ministries as well. May you fill us this Shavuot and ongoingly, continually, that we all might serve you and be catalysts for salvation in the hearts of many, many people. Father, we bless you. We glorify you and we thank you. Take our hearts and make them yours. Take our spirits and mold them and fashion them into your own. Take our choices and may they be choices that honor you. Take our lips and may we use words that are reflective of your love and compassion to one another as we build up one another. So, Father, we bless your name, we glorify you, and we thank you for this day. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.